Good evening, everyone. My name is Bob Hillman. I'm a trustee of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And tonight is a, another in a um, series of author talks that the library presents on a regular basis. This year we've had um, Chris Matthews here. We've had um, uh, Justice Sotomayor here. Um, and uh, Bob, you were right in with that group. <laughs> and... Um, in January, we'll have um, James Corville and Mary Madeline here. So um, this series is um, brought to you uh, by the Pratt through the generosity of its donors. And um, we raise the money for this. And um, in the back, you'll find some literature. If you want to help with that effort, we'd be happy to have it. Um, so... Please make yourself comfortable. I hope you enjoyed tonight's talk, and I'm, and I'm going to introduce Greg, who will introduce our author. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Greg Sesek from the Programs Department. Thank you for coming tonight. Robert Kolker is a contributing editor at New York Magazine, which is one of my favorite magazines. He has been nominated for a National Magazine Award and received the Harry Frank Guggenheim 2011 Excellence in Criminal Justice Reporting Award from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. Lost Girls, his first book, has been a New York Times bestseller and named one of Publishers Weekly's top 10 books of 2013. We welcome Robert Kolker. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for coming out tonight. Um, before I begin, I want to express a lot of thanks to the folks at the Pratt Library. I'm thrilled to be included in this series, and I want to thank you all for coming and supporting the library. And um, I'd like to single out Gil Sandler for making the connection. Uh, Gil's been a, a great friend and supporter over many years, and he called out of the blue and said, you should be at the Pratt. And that's why we're all here tonight. Um, it, he made a phone call. Um, I, um, you know, it's a, it's also a, a, you know, an extraordinarily emotionally meaningful evening for me because this is my hometown. Um, I was born in Baltimore, moved to Columbia right before turning five. Uh, my whole family is from Baltimore, and my parents have since moved back. Um, on the way here, my mom and dad said that they came to the library all the time uh, when they were students at PS49 in the, you know, the junior high school there. And I'm sure there are others who also were at 49. Show of hands, maybe. I don't know. Um, uh, Lost Girls is an unusual book. Um, it's, uh, you know, partly a true crime book, you know, a murder mystery this is about an unsolved, you know, series of killings in Long Island where, you know, there still is no solution. But it also is partly a social issues book um, about the context for the killings, about the victims and their lives and what made them vulnerable. Um, there were times when I wasn't sure which book I was writing, whether I was writing a fast-paced thriller or whether I was writing sociology. And... Um, it, it was an interesting journey, and I thought tonight I would 
talk for a little bit about how I came upon the initial story and then how I turned it into a book and the reporting that went into it. Then perhaps I'd read a little bit from it and then talk a little more and take questions. Um, uh, I've been a reporter for New York Magazine for 15 years, and um, I've been living in New York now for 25 years since I came up there for college. Um, being at New York Magazine is a real privilege because you get to write about all sorts of things, and you know my background is mainly in you know news reporting and feature reporting as opposed to writing essays or profiling politicians. Or um, uh, I, I try to report mainly stories about everyday people who are going through extraordinary situations. Um, uh, tonight, my, um, my high school journalism teacher, Jerry Berkowitz, is here. Um, he, Jerry might recall that when I was in high school, I wasn't really a reporter. I, I maybe wrote an op-ed piece and I edited stories, but mainly I wrote movie reviews. Um, I wrote about arts and culture for a very long time, and in fact, I, I never wanted to be a White House correspondent, and I never wanted to be you know, the Paris bureau chief of a newspaper. Uh, I didn't want to be stuck in the pack with a bunch of reporters trying to get, you know, the public figure to say one particular thing and then scurrying back to report the story. And uh, it just wasn't something that appealed to me. And I really um, backed into this career in my 20s when I was still convinced I wanted to write and, but, and I was trying to make a career of it. Um, my first full-time job was as a neighborhood reporter for a little community weekly on the west side of Manhattan. It was called The West Sider, and its sister paper was called The Chelsea Clinton News, named after the neighborhoods of Chelsea and Clinton. It constantly had to explain that it wasn't about Chelsea Clinton. And, uh, you know, it, it was there that I discovered a whole different kind of reporting that I really didn't know exist. It was about everyday people. Uh, and it was a little bit of a soap opera. It had a narrative aspect to it. Every week, we, I would return to the same people dealing with the same situations, whether they were fighting a new skyscraper or uh, you know, dealing with a crime problem on their street or uh, somebody running for a local political office. I learned a lot about the city and how it worked, and I um, learned a lot about gathering sources, and I realized that, that the narrative aspect of uh, of the writing was really appealing to me. And I took that with me to a bunch of different jobs before coming to New York Magazine. Um, and in the past few years at New York Magazine, I've developed a specialty in sort of narrative writing. And if you're doing that sort of thing for a big city magazine, you're going to be writing about crime and criminal justice. And so again, I've, I've you know, without planning it, have sort of developed this focus on crime stories. So... Um, we're coming up now on the third anniversary of the discovery of the first sets of remains out in Long Island that started this case. So that's where really this begins. That was in 2010 on December 13th, and then two days later on the 15th, um, a police officer found uh, these four sets of remains along Ocean Parkway, which is a long highway that I'll tell you more about when I read from the book. Um, the only reason he was out there was because he was on a training exercise with a cadaver-sniffing dog. Uh, the training exercise was loosely uh, related to an, a missing persons case from seven months earlier. Um, the missing person was Shannon Gilbert. She was in her 20s, and she was working as an escort at the time 
um, visiting a house in a beachfront community called Oak Beach. And the four sets of remains they found were also women in their 20s, also women who used Craigslist as escorts, also people who had disappeared, uh, the first in 2007. Um, this might be a good chance to break away and read from the prologue of the book to sort of set the stage for what comes next. To most travelers, the barrier islands of Long Island are just a featureless stretch between Jones Beach and Fire Island, a narrow strip of marsh and dune, bramble and beach, where the grassy waters of South Oyster Bay meet the waves of the Atlantic Ocean. The main artery of the barrier islands, Ocean Parkway, is long and straight and often empty at night, a drag racer's dream. A driver can see little more than the beach heather or bayberry tangled thick and high on the shoulders of the highway. Fifteen miles of darkness surrounds passing vehicles like a tunnel, and the headlights of other cars are visible for miles down the straightaway. You can tell when you're alone. Late on a warm night in May 2010, just after 1 a.m., Michael Pack weaved his black Ford Explorer around the traffic circle surrounding the elegant brick spire marking Jones Beach and shot out the other side on Ocean Parkway. From Manhattan, he was heading east on the straightaway, passing right by the best-kept secret of the barrier islands, Gilgo Beach, a surfing mecca in the 60s until erosion ruined the waves. Just before he reached the Fire Island turnoff, his GPS guided him off of Ocean Parkway and down an unlit, unmarked side-access road. The sign on the turnoff read Oak Beach. In the back seat sat a young woman with chestnut hair streaked blonde. Her name was Shannon Gilbert. They moved slowly now in the dark, the narrow road was overgrown with Virginia creeper and shining sumac and poison ivy. Outside, the air was spongy and salty, and the hum of the car was drowned in the whir of insects. Through some pine trees on the left, they both could see the rushing glow of cars speeding by on the highway. Through the brush on the right were the lights of a house, the only indication that anyone lived at the end of the road. After half a mile, Michael pulled up to a white gatehouse, decorated with a wooden model of a lighthouse, and a few yards beyond the gate, a blue wooden sign that read Oak Island Beach Association, established 1896. This was in the gold, kind of gold cursive lettering you might find on the side of a sloop. Where the gatehouse once had an attendant was now a metal box with a keypad. Michael didn't know the code, neither did Shannon. Michael dialed a number on his phone, and a moment later, another SUV, this one white, approached the gate from the other side. The driver's door opened. Out stepped a middle-aged man with a pot belly and a wavy mess of dark hair. The man waved, jogged a few feet up to the gatehouse, and punched in four digits, smiling over at them. The gate swung up. The explorer rolled through, and Michael waited for the man to get back in his car before following him down a path he hadn't seen back toward the house with the light. <coughs> Gus Coletti is shaving. He is 86 years old, a grandparent, long retired. He and his wife, Laura, are up early in their small wood frame house in Oak Beach to head upstate to a car show. He hears pounding on his front door. He opens up and sees a girl with chestnut hair. In her hand is a cell phone. The girl is shrieking. The only word Gus can make out is help. Those who have heard the 911 recording say it sounds as if Gus never let her inside. 
though he will later insist that he did. In any case, all it takes to send her running away is Gus saying he's going to call the police. The girl trips down the porch stairs. Gus heads outside, staying on the porch, watching, as the girl beats on a few more doors and then finds a hiding place behind the small boat just outside his house. Both he and the girl see the lights of a truck coming down the fairway toward them. When the car stops, he can see it more clearly, a black Ford Explorer with a young Asian driver. The SUV slows to a stop. Gus comes down from the porch to talk with him. As soon as the girl sees that the driver is distracted, she bolts out past the headlights, across the road, and into the darkness. Gus's driveway is just a few dozen yards from the Oak Beach gatehouse. The way out of the gated community is just yards away, but the girl doesn't head in that direction. Instead, she runs down another road, Anchor Way, to knock on another door, that of Wanda Houseman. But again, there's no answer. She keeps on running, a hundred more yards, to a street called the Bayou. Barbara Brennan hears the knocking, and she even sees the girl, notices her frantically fiddling with her cell phone. She calls out, but the girl doesn't respond, and Brennan doesn't open the door. Instead, like Gus before her, she calls 911. The girl runs. When the police finally arrive, about 45 minutes after Gus Coletti's and Barbara Brennan's 911 calls, the officer talks to the neighbors, but doesn't get much of anywhere. It isn't the least bit clear what has happened here or what is to be done. Both the car and the girl are gone. Seven months later, over three rainy days in December, police uncovered the bodies of four women in the bramble on the side of Ocean Parkway on Gilgo Beach, three miles from where Shannon Gilbert disappeared. Detectives thought at least one of them had to be Shannon. They were wrong. There was Maureen Brainerd Barnes, last seen at Penn Station in Manhattan three years earlier in 2007, and Melissa Bartholomew, last seen in the Bronx in 2009. There was Megan Waterman, last seen leaving a hotel in Huapog, Long Island, just a month after Shannon in 2010. And a few months later that same year, Amber Lynn Costello, last seen leaving a house in West Babylon, Long Island. Like Shannon... They all were petite and in their 20s. Like Shannon, they all came from out of town to work as escorts. Like Shannon, they all advertised on Craigslist and its competitor, Backpage. It had seemed enough at first for some to say the victims were all just Craigslist hookers, practically interchangeable, lost souls who were dead in a fashion long before they actually disappeared. There is a story our culture tells about people like them, a conventional way of thinking about how young girls fall into a life of prostitution. But that story in the internet age is quickly becoming outmoded. Shannon, Maureen, Melissa, Megan, and Amber took part in a modern age of prostitution in which clients are lured with the simple tap of a computer keyboard rather than the exhausting, demeaning ritual of walking the streets. The method is easier, seductively so, almost like an ATM, post an ad and the phone rings seconds later, but also deceptive about its dangers. They each made the decision to have sex for money for intensely personal reasons. Acceptance, adventure, success, love, power. They kept working often for reasons even they didn't comprehend. And they traveled in worlds that many of their loved ones could not imagine. When they disappeared, only their families were left to ask what became of them. Few others seemed to care, not even the police. That all changed once the bodies were found on Gilgo Beach. Then, a few miles from where Shannon had last been seen alive, the police flailed, the body count increased, the public took notice, and the neighbors began pointing fingers. 
There, in a remote community out of sight of the beaches and marinas scattered along the South Shore Barrier Islands, the women's stories finally came together, now all part of the same mystery. So that gives a, a bit of an overview of, of how the women are and aren't related to one another. They never knew one another, they never interacted with one another, but they had a lot in common. And one thing they had in common, it was you know, right away, one saw was the internet. They all had used Craigslist. And the police said this, even before the bodies were identified, they said that they thought these women were Craigslist escorts. Um, this was December of 2010, and I was a reporter at New York Magazine, and my editor turned to me and said, you know, you have a car. Why not report on this? And I said, no. And I, I probably said no because I was afraid, but I also thought that, I, that by the time I got out to Long Island, the mystery would be solved. I'm not sure if people remember a case called the Craigslist Killer case in Massachusetts. That had happened um, several months before, maybe, maybe nine months before. Um, uh, I'm going to mangle his name. Philip Markov or John Markov. Um, he, he hired a massage therapist on Craigslist and murdered her and was caught within a day because he left a digital footprint. And I thought, well, if there are four women who were on the Internet, they're going to find this guy four times as fast. Um, but that didn't happen. They didn't. And the police couldn't explain why, but they, they never solved that mystery. And weeks went by, and the snow came, and they stopped searching for bodies. But everybody was wondering where Shannon Gilbert still was. And now Shannon Gilbert was a very visible case, and CNN was talking about this case, and, and the tabloids were all over it. And it, it was a mystery to me as a magazine writer how to write about this. Um, normally when you want to write something long about a breaking news story like this. You need either access to somebody, like a lead investigator in the case, or you need an idea. You need an approach that's different from what everyone else is doing. Otherwise, you're just sort of reprinting what everybody else has written. And so I I spent a lot of the winter winter working on other stories and wondering what else to do. And... um, in January of 2011, the victims suddenly had names, Maureen and Megan and um, Amber and Melissa, and their families started to get attention. And by the end of March, they started to find more bodies. As I said in the introduction, the body count increased until finally there were 11 sets of remains, all told, along Ocean Parkway and further out in Long Island. Again, the police had no leads. The media was parked out every day trying to find a new piece of information. The neighbors were pointing fingers at one another. And my editor came to me again and said, you know, this time you really can't say no. It's time to find a way to write about this. And I started to look into the families. Now, I was, at the time, I was very, I I was, it was not my first priority to think about the families of the missing women. Um, They, you know, when, when, um, when the media writes about events like this, everything fits into a very easy spot and a very digestible narrative. There's the mysterious serial killer who we have to try and profile, and there's forensic evidence that you have to trace. And then there are the grieving families who are almost like extras. And then there are the victims themselves who are the, perhaps the most, in, this, in the cases of escorts, they're discarded by the media as sort of the most disposable or interchangeable extras of all. And I got to admit, you know, I felt that way too at first. But then I saw that the the family members were coming together and they were talking a little bit about what 
uh, about the women they lost and how angry they were that nobody seemed to care that they were missing for so long until they were part of a serial killer case. And I had lunch with one of them, with Missy Can. My lunch with Missy is in the middle of Lost Girls. And uh, learned a lot about her, and what I, I saw a whole other human drama unfold. You know, this is a woman who, she herself was, was a, not an escort and never wanted to be. Her sister made decisions that she never would have. Uh, she loved her sister dearly and didn't want to alienate her by um, criticizing her or, you know, telling her she disapproved. Nobody thought that she would get murdered. And now suddenly the national media is knocking on her door wanting to find out more about her dead sister. And she'd become sort of the custodian of her sister's memory. And it seemed like a very complicated position for her to be in. And I thought that would be a good story. My editor said, why don't you talk to them all? Again, another great idea. And, I, and so within a week or so, I brought mothers or sisters of all five women together into New York for a cover story for New York Magazine. Um, that cover story was very powerful. It was a powerful couple of days. I remember talking to my sister the day after I did it. She was in town. She's here tonight as well. Um, but she was in town the day after I did it, and I was still in a daze sort of walking around the city. And um, you know, they, the, the emotions were so complicated. You have people who um, knew what their daughters and sisters were doing, but kept close relationships with them. Again, not wanting to alienate them, perhaps even benefiting financially from them. And now suddenly the whole world is at their door wanting to know their stories. And I, I really thought that that would be something that I, know, that was something I had not predicted would happen. I mean, I, what I thought when I thought about the victims initially was that they, I thought about The Wire, right? As in season two of The Wire where um, there's a shipping container that opens up and it's the bodies of women who have been trafficked in from another country. I thought we would never learn about these women. But here you had women who were actually leading more or less functional lives with relationships with their uh, family members. And that was interesting to me. When the magazine story came out, I thought about it as a book. And initially, the agent who I was talking to said, how could you do a book about this? There's no you know, murderer. There's no ending to this book. And I immediately thought, this wouldn't be that kind of book. It would be five biographies of five women who are leading difficult and complicated lives and making risky choices. Um, the first half of the book would be about their lives up until the moments they disappear. The second half of the book would be everything that happened with their families since then and with the case. And God willing, there would be an arrest, and that would be one ending. But even without that ending, it would still stand, I thought, as an, you know, an important book to do. Now, the advantages of a, of a book like this is that no one's quite done it before. No one's really looked at prostitution in the age of Craigslist and how it's changed and made it easier for women to enter the, to make that choice, and yet somehow the dangers remain the same. And uh, the minuses were that the mystery wasn't solved, and who cares about the girls? What a lot of people would say, it's half the publishers thought. You know, the girls are all going to run together in this book. And I, I think actually, I don't know who's read the book and who hasn't, but there's still, a, you know, there, for a lot of readers, the, the women do still almost run together. And then, of course, there was a reporting challenge here. What if I didn't find out enough about them? What if no one talks to me? What if the family members um, turn away and say, no, we don't want to be a part of this? Um, what, if I, what if every family member does talk to me, but I don't learn enough about their lives as prostitutes, as escorts? Um, 
it was not immediately clear that I really had a book here. But I did have a book deal, and so I got to work. <laughs> you know, my job, I thought, was to show that they were more than they appeared to be. And the reporting was, you know, was really revelatory. Um, all the families did participate. And um, I learned conflicting information from a lot of different relatives. And you see, like, there's a lot of he said, she said in this book. And then I, you know, along the way met good close friends of a lot of the women who were, you know, sharing apartments or houses with them while they worked or were working right alongside them. And then there was, in one case, someone whose you know, older sister was an escort, and I got to know her as well. Um, what I didn't really predict was how well all of this would work and how, how the unsolved mystery would actually make it easier for a lot of readers to turn their attention toward the women and to, and to their stories. It almost like it gives you permission to, to pay attention to the murder mystery, but also to pay attention to the victims. And that, that actually ended up making the book very effective for a lot of readers. And I also spent so much time learning about the women that I forgot just how compelling the unsolved mystery was. But since the book's been published, I've gotten a call or email a week from someone who says they know who the killer is or that it's their, it's their ex-husband or it's someone they knew in college. You know, they, they, it, it just it keeps on going. But it's the women and their stories that really, I think, are the reason why this book got the attention it did. And um, the job, job one for me was to try to understand what made them different from one another and what their lives were like. Um, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who grew up in Connecticut, she went straight to Craigslist without any other steps. Um, she uh, had trouble holding on to a job. She had two children to help support. She was sort of the aimless dreamer of her family, and uh, making this decision to work this way crossed a lot of needs off of her list, the money she could make in just a couple days here and there, and suddenly she was automatically a responsible parent and, and uh, fulfilling her obligations. Shannon Gilbert, she went to Craigslist from an escort service. She um, worked for an escort service for a while, made a lot of money. The escort service got busted and went under. She tried other escort services, but it didn't work out, and she realized that she could make more money working on her own as a free agent with a, a driver who worked for her. She was a decided she was an entrepreneur, and that money gave her a lot of power in her family and helped win her back a place in her family that she felt she had lost a long time before. Megan Waterman from Maine, she, she did it really to be closer to her boyfriend. And this is a story that people who study this issue see a lot. They see you know, the Romeo pimp who, who behaves like a boyfriend but also, in fact, is basically the manager for the girl. Um, and Amberlyn Costello did it to be closer to her sister, her older sister, who she worshipped and who was also an escort. And then there was Melissa Bartholomew, who spent three years in Times Square with a traditional pimp-escort relationship. And eventually she abandoned her pimp again for the money. And, and so I came around again and realized that they really do have something in common, but something different from the stereotype. Before I worked on this book, I thought... If you're in prostitution in this day and age, you're doing it because you're addicted to drugs and you need money for the drugs. What I learned from these five women's stories is it went the other way. It's that the, the money was what drew them together, and that once they were making so much money, they couldn't walk away from the money, and so 
the substance abuse problems and all the other problems came later. And this is where I hit on another social issue that might be another reason why a lot of readers have identified with this book. The face of prostitution is changing. Um, you no longer have to go to a bad neighborhood to um, you know, be in the commercial sex industry anymore. You know, the Internet's changing a lot of things. It's changing New York Magazine, which is going to come out twice a month now, and it's changing book selling, and, uh, and it's changed prostitution as well. And if you, um, there are women who are entering the field now who never would have considered it a few years ago. And I didn't set out to write that kind of book, or a policy book, a sociology book, but that change in prostitution kind of informs everything about the book. It shows how they were able to stay closer to their um, family members, the way that perhaps the previous era might not have been possible. And it shows the, the money, the money shows what motivated them to do this. Um, they all came from working class parts of the country, parts of the country where options have really been drying up. And I didn't want to beat the reader over the head with a story about class and the divide between rich and poor, but that came through anyway. Um, and I, I see now that this is, this is, we're in a moment now that's sort of welcoming that idea more and more. I mean, the president just gave a speech about income inequality a few days ago. He weaves it in when he talks about health care. Yeah, George Packer wrote The Unwinding, an enormously you know, expansive book that got a lot of attention in the past year about the gap between rich and poor. This book opened my eyes not just to the whole 1%, 99% issue, but to the, the, the gap between the middle class and the working class. Um, the middle class is worried about paying for college or home ownership um, or holding on to a job or health care. But the working class is basically at the poverty line in a lot of places in America. And so the options become very austere. It's either work at Dunkin' Donuts um, or work at Walmart. So the, the, that's the life that a lot of these women were, were in. Um, in writing the book, I realized that was where I needed to go in terms of my tone. I, I started this talk by saying I'm not sure, wasn't sure at the time if I would be writing an Elmore Leonard book, like a steamy detective story, or if I'd be writing you know, dry sociology. But I saw that there, there are books out there I've admired for years and writers I've admired for years who I could really emulate. I was you know, influenced by... Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc, who wrote Random Family, where she spent a lot of time getting to know women in the inner city. And, of course, there's, there's Alex Kotlowitz, who is related to some of the people in this room, who um, wrote There Are No Children Here back in 1991, where he looked at two kids in Chicago. And then there's David Simon, who wrote The Corner and um, Homicide. You know, uh, these, are, these are writers who you know, without, without being overly, well, David Simon's a little political. He kind of pushes hard on the, on the issues. But, but they all are, are narrative writers who are trying to show more than tell. And uh, that's what I tried to do with Lost Girls. And with that, I'd, I'd love to open up the floor to any questions. Yes, right there. Thank you very much. This is, uh, was very uh, coming from my own 
or religious Jewish communities, some of the things I did until tonight, I didn't know exactly what an escort service is or was or anything like that. So you have to bear with my ignorance for a moment. You know, we try to be very self-protected in our own community. Mm. But I had a question um, in general. Do you, is there an effort being made in the high schools and college levels for counseling and all that to educate the women the dangers of some going through this type of service, and do men go through uh, other male escorts too? I don't know these things. So, what, what's happening out there um, in this age of freedom? I guess. Thank you. There are males in in this business, and there's there's a population that gets written about a lot that is not in Lost Girls, which is the underage population of um, uh, you know homeless runaways and then trafficked you know young people and um, the homeless sometimes engage in something called survival sex, where there, there's a, there was a study done by Covenant House in New York last spring that showed an enormous percentage of, of homeless youth who they interviewed said that they, they had sex for money because they didn't have a place to live. Um, uh, more broadly, um, uh, human trafficking is a, is a term that suddenly is really, really very popular these days. You see it pop up everywhere. And um, a few years ago, I thought the term meant, you know, a lot like season two of The Wire, you know, the shipping container comes with women from another country. But now that term has broadened so that even some family members of the women I wrote about in Lost Girls said that they, were, that they felt that these women were trafficked, which is something I don't necessarily agree with. But it, it's an effort to sort of bring attention to their situation in a sympathetic way. If you, if you, try, to, if you try to support someone who's an escort, fewer people will show up. But if you say someone is a victim of human trafficking, then suddenly it, it, changes, the, it changes the picture for a lot of people. And, and it's working in some places. I mean, there was an op-ed in the New York Times earlier this week that talked about how more and more European countries are changing the laws or to prosecute Johns and not prosecute escorts, um, to treat prostitutes as victims and not as criminals. You know, this is this is all uh, part and parcel of of a point of view that might be shifting. Um, yes. My question is: um, how, Do you feel that prostitution should be legalized? And if it were, would would that wash away a lot of this these situations? Um, I'm not certain that it should be legalized. I'm worried about unintended consequences there. Um, sometimes when legalization experiments happen, it just is sort of an open invitation for the traffickers, the so real traffickers, the ones who are kidnapping and brainwashing underage women to sort of come in because they can hide in plain sight. Um, I definitely believe in harm reduction. I believe in destigmatization. I mean, the the... the the bottom line for me about the women in this case and in other cases where you know, violence is perpetrated against these people is that they, they're attacked because they're vulnerable and they're vulnerable because they work in the shadows and they work in the shadows because of the stigma. Um, I try not to single out law enforcement as perpetrating that stigma because they aren't alone. But the, the fact is there, there are all sorts of low-level criminals out there who get better treatment from the police than, than prostitutes do. Um, and uh, this isn't exactly the police's fault all the time, but, but certainly prostitutes don't feel safe coming to the police if they feel like they're in danger. So the, it's the stigma, I think, that needs to be fought more than anything else. 
Gail? We have some programs at Baltimore. Well, we have some programs uh, designed to address the problem by providing refuge, that is, safe houses, encouraging these trapped women to escape, and they're so structured to help them escape. Do you see that as a possible, as having any, uh, any long-term effect on the, uh, on the problem? Is that a way to, to, to deal with it in your view? I think, uh, I think directly engaging with the population and finding people in distress is a great idea, and it takes a lot of work to convince those people to, to find refuge, but it, I, think it's, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Um, we were talking earlier about how it might, you know, by some perspectives, be a drop in the bucket, and maybe it is, but that doesn't mean that those people don't need help. Um, you know, the, it's the options. Like, what are their options? Um, if they, if, if they and, and you, sir, you asked about education earlier. If people can understand that, that the money they make from this actually makes them more vulnerable um, that if they ever run into trouble, they won't be able to get help. If they can think a few steps ahead to the troubling situation, it can put them in. Not about the morality even, but about the troubling situation that they'll be in. Then, then maybe there's a chance to, to curb this. Yes? I was wondering in the reaction to the book, whether you found that you're getting different reactions based upon people's political leanings. For instance, some people could look at these women and say, well, they should take responsibilities for their lives or they're doing immoral things, whereas some people from another political spectrum might say that this is the result of great disparity between rich and poor, we should raise minimum wage, we're not taking care of the working class as much, or things like that. Have you found different people based upon their political beliefs using this book for their various political reasons? I have, and I don't want to... Um, I'm afraid I'll come off sounding cynical if I say this, but I, it's exactly what I had hoped. I mean, the, the idea here was, was to write narrative nonfiction about a real gray area, about people making you know, risky, sometimes desperate choices, but owning those choices and being happy about it. One of the things you see in Lost Girls is that the decision works for these women for a short period of time. It solves their problems. And then, of course, it doesn't. And it's that gray area that fascinates me. Um, that's, I think, the powerful thing that longer nonfiction writing can do. It can get us past the heroes and villains and the cowboys and Indians that you see on, in, in the TV stories and in the shorter stories. And it, it's what I've, you know, what I've always wanted to do. And, you know, the reviews of the book are amazing the, the, in the way how different they are. You know, the, the Washington Post said, this is why prostitution should be legalized. And the New York Times said, this is why prostitution is not a victimless crime and it should be, you know, and implying that it should be abolished. Um, everyone goes their own way with it. And um, it's a Rorschach test, the way that a lot of journalism is a Rorschach test. And um, I'm, I'm just glad that, that it's the women's situations and their dilemmas that are being discussed and that it's not another book that's wondering... Uh, what some FBI profile or who doesn't know anything about the case thinks whether the killer is in his 30s or in his 40s or if he came in on a boat or came in on a truck. I mean, th those, 
that, that to me is a meaningless conversation um, compared to the other conversation. Sir. Was the pressure brought to uh, Craigslist to make their advertising escort services so obvious? Yes, they, under pressure, they, got, they removed their adult services category. Um, I think it was the day after the, the last victim in this case disappeared. Um, but people shifted over to Backpage, to the big competitor, and they also were still on Craigslist, sort of advertising surreptitiously under different categories. What, what's happened there isn't terribly surprising, and it's not even about the Internet. I mean, the fact is that, you know, commercial sex has existed in every civilization throughout history. And even in, even in America, through the colonial times and Civil War times, it was something that was sort of existed and was shrugged off. It was in the, the first big change, as far as I can tell from my rudimentary research, the first in American prostitution happened during the Progressive Era, where, where activists stood up and said, we're going to force law enforcement to pay attention to this. It's immoral. It's wrong. It should go away. And, of course, the women are being terribly, terribly victimized. And so prostitution was outlawed, and so it, uh, perhaps for a lot of really great reasons, but it entered the shadows. I mean, it certainly didn't go away. People just pretended it didn't exist. And then the second big thing to happen uh, to prostitution is, I believe, the Internet, where suddenly people are entering the field who never would have done it a few years earlier because they think they can just do it for a couple of days and walk away. Uh, it, It sort of changes the game the way it's changed the game for so many other industries. So when it comes to Craigslist, now, now people are, are angry at Backpage, but the fact is even the activists know that if Backpage went away tomorrow, there'd be 12 other websites ready to run the advertisements. So it's hard to blame the Internet, though, for an impulse that's out there anyway. It's, like, it's hard to blame a medium for anything, like the telephone. Are you for it or against it? I mean, the, the Internet is, is part of our life. It's, why, it's how these women marketed themselves, but it's also how the families all found to each other and communicated with one another. And it's how the killer found these women. So it's, it's everywhere. Um, uh, there are some who say that, that you need a big site like Backpage running these ads because then it's easier for law enforcement to comb through them and try and find the traffickers and the people dealing with underage people. And that if you, if you um, outlawed the, this in some way, if you got around the First Amendment and outlawed it, that um, it would still exist online anyway. It would just be harder to detect. Yes, Jeff. Do you think television and the movies have glorified this lifestyle that younger kids are seeing this where you didn't see it years ago on TV? Shows like um, Law and Order and all these shows. Do you think that helps or hurts um, the situation? Um, that's a good... I hadn't given that a lot of thought to that question. I mean, people talk a little bit about rap culture. And they talk about, you know, there are some, there's some, there's pimp culture out there where they have things like, I've seen documentaries about it, they have something called a player's ball where the pimps all get together and they parade around the women who are working for them. And it looks, and the symbology and the iconography in it is something that all the major rap stars appropriate. Um, Or maybe it's the pimps who are appropriating the rap stars. It's hard to know. But But it, you know, but of course, you know, prostitution isn't a, is broader than that. It exists beyond any sort of ethnic category. 
Um, and I think it, it existed long before pop culture existed. Yes? I have a question from the true crime perspective, because the, the book is amazing, and it, it really is so compelling and provocative. But then I think, having read the book, and having seen the, um, the hour-long, was it CBS? Yeah, um, 48 hours. So, so the story is, is reopened in a very public way, and the killer is still out there. So I was wondering if you, what you think and what your thoughts are around having had this bright media light shown on it, does it help or hinder the, um, the investigation itself and, and the, the, the you know, finding the person or people who, who did this? It kind of does it all, doesn't it? I mean, it, it helps, it puts pressure on the investigators because you know, more people in the public are wondering if there's going to be a break in the case. It brings fame to the killer who, you know, perhaps one of his motivations is to, you know, top Joel Rifkin or, to, you know, to, to get some sort of notoriety. But then it, you know, it, it also might put the fear of God into the killer because now, you know, he knows he can't dump bodies in that place and has to go somewhere else. Um, and then it also might lead to a break in the case one day. I mean, these television shows do lead to leads that lead to new information. And it might end up getting him caught. So, you know, at least at this stage of the game in our culture, shows like that are like the weather, too. Um, and the, you could argue that Lost Girls is an effort to try to counteract that serial killer culture where you, where you, you know, people are fascinated by the Hannibal Lecters of the world or Dexter. Or they watch shows like Criminal Minds that are about a serial killer every week and suddenly they become a comic book character. And this book sort of demonstrates the human cost behind cases like this. Or you could argue the opposite, that it's putting a high culture gloss on the situation and making the killer even happier. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that that isn't troubling to, at some level, but I'm also not convinced that turning away from something that actually happened is the best thing to do. I mean, people have pretended for years that red light districts didn't exist, that prostitutes didn't matter, that the victims didn't matter, and you end up with situations like what happened in Long Island where the police actually say, don't worry about it, it's just prostitutes. And that's, you know, unacceptable. We'll have two more questions. Okay. Um, Mike? So, so, so what, do you do with the, uh, what do you do with the calls and emails that you get with tips from the public about uh, evil brothers-in-law and so forth? Um, I, I, I ask them if they've talked to the police. It's question number one, and they always have. So then I kind of relax a little bit, and then I, and then I listen. And uh, depending on how much time I have, I listen. And, some, and they'll go on, and then you know, sometimes they sound, there is a little bit of a pattern. Um, the people who really, really believe it's a certain person they know make a lot of good points for the first 15 or 20 minutes. And then it kind of all falls apart, and you see that they really are, are, are upset and in distress and need, just need someone to talk to. And so it, it all kind of goes in that direction. But then I've gotten calls from other people who lived at Oak Beach who had, can share sort of opinions and insight about some of the movers and shakers in that neighborhood and who might know what about what. Um, and those are, those are things that I sort of save string on. But I've gotten nothing explosive from them. I'm not sitting on any big sequel. Oh, uh, Jerry. 
uh, a small thing. Um, three part question. <laughs> <laughs> To what, to what degree uh, did you use uh, sources within the police departments, uh, the detectives and so on, did you do much interviewing of them? Uh, two, did you hope in a small part of your heart of hearts that the patterns that you found in interviewing all these people and casting you know, a broad net over the whole series of crimes, that a solution would be found, you know, that somehow there would be a break? And after the book has been published, um, have you been with the, those police departments to see whether or not they've been able to use any of the insights uh, gathered. Um, the police were closed off to the media almost entirely, and 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 so that I didn't take it personally when they didn't want to talk to me. And I was really quite focused on trying to write about the women's lives, and so for a while I I kind of procrastinated when it came to trying to talk to law enforcement. A call here and a call there. And then toward the end, I was very fortunate that the um, police commissioner was about to leave office. He was being retired out, and so was his chief of detectives. And so they felt a little more uh, comfortable having a visit with me. And I, you know, or I visited them, and that's in the book. And there's a lot. So the book gives the impression that there's a law enforcement presence, but it really the reporting is very slim on the law enforcement side. What was your second question? <laughs> Oh, the patterns, yeah. The f- well, the families certainly felt that way when they first met one another. Like, the, the minute they sat down, they all started talking to one another, saying, you know, did your, did your daughter have an Asian driver? You know, did your drive- daughter have a client who had trouble seeing, you know, who, you know who, who was almost blind? You know, th- there was a lot of that. And they shared conspiracy theories as well. Um, so in the beginning, I was interested in that, too. Um, there, there was you know, there was one comment on the internet from a reader from on an Amazon, was it Amazon or Goodreads? Someone who's a very who must read a lot of true crime and follow cases a lot, and she picked little bits and pieces from the book, saying, "Why didn't the author try and see if there was an association between what happened here, there, and what happened there, here?" And I and I thought, "Wow, you know, if it were a different kind of book, I really would have been spending a lot more time doing that, but I didn't." Um, and then, and then. Um, your third question was about the the broader effects. I think the the idea of granting immunity to to escorts coming forward with information that might lead to something in this case is something that Suffolk County has been bouncing around for a while, and they're under increased pressure to do it now because of the visibility of this case. And maybe the book's helping there. And then there are other places around the country where where that's happening too, where they're not they're not decriminalizing, they're not legalizing, they're just thawing the relationship. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks.